So why don't we stand for the reading of God's word, and then we'll pray 20 verses. If you can't stand for the whole thing, you're welcome to, to sit down. David says, I will praise you, O Lord. My, I'm sorry, am I in Psalm 9? Yeah. Well, let me read the first part to the chief musician, to the tune of Death of the Son, uh, or also can be translated, uh, died, Dying for the Son, Psalm of David. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in time, times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. In the gates of the daughters of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not, always, shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord. Do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for your word. And as we have to talk about tonight, we do thank you for your judgment, that it's not um, an unrighteousness, but it's, it's injustice, it's good. And Lord, I think that we do need to learn how to rejoice because of it, because of you. Nothing you do is evil. Everything you do is right. And uh, so, Lord, teach us that. And as David talks about, help us to report all the marvelous things of God to those around us. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, just a couple things to begin with. Many people believe that Psalm 10 is a continuation of Psalm uh, chapter 9. Uh, together, they can make an acrostic with... Um, the Hebrew alphabet, even though the acrostic is not complete. Um, another reason that they believe that it's a continuation, that 9 and 10 are together, is there's no heading or superscription in Psalm 10. It just begins. And so the idea is that if you take 9 and 10 and join them together, you have your superscription for 9 and 10 together. Okay? Um, in, um, in the Septuagint, and the Latin Vulgate, 
uh, Psalm 9 and 10 are treated as one psalm. One psalm. Now, I looked. I don't have a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Does anybody have a copy in English? You do? The Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. And it's not a study on the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. Okay, so it's Spencer's responsibility uh, to see how the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, organize chapter 9 and 10 of the Psalms. Fair enough? All right. Good. I tried to look it up, but you know, you, you Google something and it's, it's like insane. So I don't have my PhD in internet searches. So, yeah. The, the psalm itself is uh, categorized as a lament, but when I read the psalm, I don't get the feeling that Paul or David is lamenting. I get the feeling that he's rejoicing. And last time I checked, those are different. Uh, so sometimes I go, well, well, by what standard do you categorize a psalm? Uh, because he doesn't say he's lamenting, weeping, or any of that. He talks about some oppression and things like that. But most of it is um, rejoicing in the, the wonderful works of God, his justice, his goodness, his protection, and things like that. So if I was in charge of uh, putting this in some kind of category, I would not have put lament. That's my personal view. And the scholars really aren't in charge, are they? So it does not say a lament of David. Um, real quick, let's look at this here. If you have the New King James, or if you have the King James Version, uh, it says death of the sun. Who has that in their translation? A bunch of you. Okay. Uh, the Hebrew is mut laben. And uh, if you have the NASB, it has that. Who else has another translation? NIV. Does it have mut laben in it? in your footnotes. Yeah. So that's actually the Hebrew phrase. Uh, it's only found here in the scriptures, and all it does is create confusion for us today, uh, because we're not really sure uh, what to say about it. Um, Spiro Zodiati says this in his Hebrew lexicon. He says, it is, part of the, it is part of the musical directions for the singing of this psalm, yet the meaning is ambiguous. Various renderings have been offered by interpreters, the most likely option being that the phrase is either a little of a tune or a title of a tune to which the psalm was to be sung or that the phrase means death to the sun or to die for the sun. Also possible is the combination of these two options, namely that the phrase is a title of a tune called death to the sun or to die for the sun to which Psalm 9 was to be sung. So it seems to be a tune rather than a title because there's no reference uh, in the psalm of a, a dying son or dying for a son, right? It's not in there. And uh, so uh, it just makes it more confusing. And uh, because the title isn't then carried into the psalm, it doesn't say anything about the historical context. So we can't say that it has something to do with the death of one of David's sons. Uh, and he never died for any of his children. So it's just very strange. There's no historical context. But as I've said before, when something is as general as this, then I think we have more liberty to apply it to more situations in life. Amen? If it's specific, then we have to confine it more uh, to the specifics. But it's not so much. So. so the rest of Psalm 1 and 2, David says, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most 
Hi. Now, as we've, we've already read through the psalm, you can tell that a lot of the themes, uh, a lot of what's contained in there, they're, they're, those are already doctrines that we've explored. But there is something that is fresh uh, that comes out in the psalm that I think is important. It comes out immediately in verse 1, and then again in verse 11, and then verse 14. And that's the issue of reporting, of, of telling of God's goodness, His marvelous works. He says it three times. Twice. Well, the first time it's him doing it, the second time is him encouraging people to do it, and the third time is him saying, I will do it. I will do it. So in, in verse 1 and 2, of course, we find David praising, rejoicing, singing, but for the first time we see this, I will tell of your marvelous works. It's not just about you know, giving praise directly to God, it's about singing his praise to others. That's the point uh, in all of that. And you can always tell. Uh, when someone is excited about something or someone, because what? You hear about it. You hear about it. And uh, David does that. Okay? Thankful people, blessed people, have a tendency to talk about it. We don't just say thank you to the one who did it, the wonderful thing, but we like to share with others what uh, that person has done on our behalf. And that's what David does in this psalm. But reporting the wonderful or marvelous works that God has done may not be what we typically um, tell others. We'll, we'll get into that. It begins here, verse 3 and 4. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. How many of you guys have been so excited about the judgment of your enemies that you wrote a song about it? <laughs> but that's what we see here. The, the very first marvelous work that David praises God for is granting victory over his enemies and upholding David's cause, which we'll come back to, and then judging his enemies in righteousness. Now, the cause that David is referring to in verse 4 is a legal one, a legal cause. The word speaks of a just cause that is always related to something legal. Okay? Now David is probably referring to his God-given commission, his, his legal divine right as king to subdue the nations uh, which God had uh, delivered over to, to, to Israel. Okay? He was commissioned with diminishing their power within the borders of the promised land. David was, every king was commissioned uh, that way. That is his, his right. That's his cause. And, um, and of course, looking back on that, we go, ooh, destroying cultures and people groups. And, well, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, God is talking to Abraham and he says, you guys, you're, you and your children, basically your children, are going to go into uh, captivity, into bondage for so many, 400 years. And he said, the reason is, is because the iniquity of the Amorites and that's all who dwell within the land promised to Abraham, their iniquity is not yet complete. It has not re yet reached a level where I can justify their annihilation. But by the time I bring you out of Egypt, their evil, their wickedness will be so bad that I can no longer tolerate their presence on planet Earth. And so through that, Israel is then commissioned to dispatch these evil peoples. And, you know, when you read through... Um, especially Leviticus, God is, uh, he's 
quantifying and describing the kinds of sins among the Amorites and the Canaanites. And it's, it's gross sin. And uh, God knew what he was doing. David keeps reporting, though. He says, you have rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their, their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory uh, has perished. Now, let me give this to you in the, the ESV because the New King James is rather ambiguous. This is a lot better. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. That's a lot easier, isn't it? Yeah. I want to look at this one real quick. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. To David, that is a marvelous work. It's a marvelous work. Okay. Yeah. This, this last um, statement there in verse 5 refers to the settled fate of the wicked. Okay, their fate will not be determined on the last uh, day or the day of judgment. Their fate has already been determined by their unrelenting wickedness. God has already blotted out their name, which implies that their name was somewhere, right? But God has done away with their name. He's removed it forever. And that is a marvelous thing that David is rejoicing over. He's glad for that because he is, God has dealt so thoroughly with the wicked. Okay. The same word, marvelous, uh, was used to describe God's judgment of Egypt with the ten plagues in Exodus 3.20. So David isn't the first. Uh, the devastation of Pharaoh and his armies when they crossed the Red Sea. Again, in Psalm 106.22 and the, the prophet Micah, Micah 7.15. And so David, along with other people, rejoiced at the judgment of the wicked. Now, I, I think today most Christians are uncomfortable with that sort of talk. I see some heads nodding. Yeah. But you have to understand, it's actually found throughout the scriptures. Throughout the scriptures. In fact, it's found all over the book of Revelation. Uh, it's in chapter 11, 14, 15, 16, 19, and other places. Those are the only ones I wrote down. And uh, it's everywhere. Now, the language is uncomfortable. And I actually think that's healthy for us. I think it's healthy. Because deep down, uh, perhaps not as deep for others, but we realize that we actually deserve God's judgment for the wicked that we have done. It's also possible we don't believe that the wicked deserve the judgment that is coming upon them. Uh, I would say that one needs to be corrected, whereas the other one does, does not. But we realize that we were wicked and that we deserve judgment. We realize that only by the grace of God have we been delivered from the wrath of God that was justly deserved. But it's also healthy to recognize the goodness and justice of God in all of his judgment. It's important too, because if God did not judge the wicked, the unrepentant, and the unbelieving, he would be just as wicked as they, for no good judge overlooks evil. No good judge does. And in reality, he did not overlook our evil. Scripture says that he took our evil, imputed it to Christ, and then he was punished for it. So either way, God is just and no evil will escape his judgment. Man can either be judged eternally for his own sin, or man can repent and trust in the eternal Son of God who was punished in their place. Okay? 
But so both responses to God's judgment, I believe, are healthy, and I believe it's righteous. Let me give you two New Testament examples, because I often hear people say, well, that, that's the Old Testament. That's not the New Testament. Um, okay, writing to Titus, Paul basically was saying, Titus, do not forget where you came from. Here's the text. He says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Okay, now that's keeping things in perspective, isn't it? That's what we were, okay? And the wages of sin is death. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. So Paul uh, would encourage us to remember the depths of depravity from which we were delivered, right? He would encourage that, knowing that we're no better than sinners. We're better off, okay? But Paul equally looked forward to the judgment of the wicked and the unbelieving, as he said to the believers who were being persecuted in Thessalonica. He says this, he says, this is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because their testimony among you was believed. Yeah, 2 Thessalonians 1. Are both found in scripture? Yeah. Both then are equally inspired by the Holy Spirit. So God's marvelous works are found in the salvation he provides and in the judgment he administers. Equally so. Equally so. Yeah. Something else that's interesting. Moses, Miriam, Deborah, and David all wrote songs of praise to God. Same song, praising God for his salvation and praising God for his wrath. Same song, both things. It's healthy to understand what God is like, yeah, what he does. Okay, let's move on. There's more judgment to come. But the Lord shall endure forever. So he says that the wicked will perish, but the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. So David now is, is turning his attention to the future, to that time when God administers judgment for all. So a person's fate, if you will, I'm not sure that's a Christian term, um, we have to understand that our fate, our, our eternal destiny is sealed here. It's sealed here. Some people think, well, we go to the judgment seat of God and then God figures it out in some magical way. But actually, the, our, every man's fate, every woman's fate is determined at the end of our life here. So those who believe and repent are saved. Uh, those who refuse are condemned. But there is something that, ha that happens at the final judgment. That's where God sends everyone to their eternal 
habitation, if you will. Okay? It's Revelation 20, 11. It's, it's the great white throne judgment. John puts it this way. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So the idea is this is a, an awesome and dreadful thing. So the earth, the heaven, they flee. There's no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That is an awesome thing to consider. Yeah. So after the final judgment, and all evil is put away and forgotten, God then ushers in the eternal state. And that's where the believer will reside with God forever. No evil, no unrighteousness. This is marvelous to David. There's more. He says, the Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in time of trouble, times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So God isn't just the judge of the wicked. He's a refuge for the oppressed, for those who know God, for those who put their trust in him. Now, it's important to mention that this passage, because many passages in the scriptures are used as promises that God spares his people who seek his face and trust him from all calamity and oppression. This text is not a promise that God is going to do that in this lifetime. Okay? We have to be careful with the text. Okay? The text actually implies that people, his people are oppressed. Now, you can't have refuge for the oppressed without people being oppressed. Amen? You just can't. So God's people are oppressed. They will be oppressed. Much of the Bible records the oppression of God's people. Okay. But David, who was oppressed, he was a fugitive, he was a refugee, uh, he was hunted. Um, him and many people like him, they found refuge in God and they trusted him through all of the adversity of life. God kept them from despair and he kept them, and I think this is really the promise, is that God keeps them for his kingdom. Okay. That is a promise. That's a guarantee in the scriptures. When we think of you know, in eschatology and in, in, in the very last things, God is our eternal refuge. Now, that is one thing that um, can be different from old covenant to new covenant. We've talked about this before. The Jews, it was, it was a contingency, but if the Jews were faithful to keep God's law, they would never suffer oppression. That's interesting. Uh, they would never have plague. They would never have famine. They would never have miscarriages. They would, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of things they would never experience. That was the promise for obedience. That is different in the new covenant. We have no promise of being spared of a plague or famine or persecution. Our promises are the exact opposite. Okay? Paul says that everyone who desires to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. So those promises belong to Israel in a former covenant we have a new covenant. The promises are different. We have blessings of that nature to look forward to in heaven, but not on planet earth. Okay, very, very different. Very different. 
Psalm 9, 11 through 12. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Now here it is. Declare his deeds among the people. So it's not David now doing it. Well, he's doing it in the psalm. But now he's, he's commanding others to tell, to declare God's deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Those two phrases go together. Okay? Declaring his deeds among the people. What is the deed? That God does not forget. God remembers. Okay? God remembers. And David says this thing that he remembers should not be ignored. It shouldn't go unspoken. He should be worshipped. He should be delighted in for what he does. Marvelous works. Here he is the avenger of blood. That's what the text is saying. He is the avenger of blood. He does not ever overlook murder. He has decreed to avenge the life that has been unjustly taken from them. It's a decree of God. It's one of the earliest, by the way. It's Genesis 9, 5 through 6. He says, it's right when uh, Noah comes off the ark, God reestablishes his covenant with him. He, he reimposes the, the um, procreation mandate, the dominion mandate, but then he incorporates something that's new to the game. He says, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's a decree. Yeah. So wherever man or government does not deal with murder as God requires, he will keep his word to avenge. You guys, God is the ultimate avenger of blood. Okay. The image of God in man is too precious to him uh, for him to overlook that. All right, let's switch over for a minute. The psalm now turns to praise and petition. David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. So now this is, we've already talked about this. There's rejoicing in God's righteousness when he judges. And there's rejoice, excuse me, I think I ate too much. You guys brought a lot of food tonight. I was just doing my share. So rejoicing in God's righteousness and judgment, and then rejoicing in God's salvation. I think that what David is demonstrating is that as a whole Christian. He understands who God is. He understands what God does. All of it is right. All of it is right. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made, in the net which they hid. Their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Selah. This principle is found throughout the scriptures. You know, it's this, this moral law, this, this order that God has uh, instilled into the world that he created. Uh, maybe we can call it cause and effect. Uh, the scriptures usually talk about whatever a man sows, he will reap. He will reap. He will at least eventually reap, whether it's here and now or in eternity. Uh, God will make sure that everyone, and as he says here, every nation, will get what it deserves. Okay? Do not be deceived, Paul says. Do not be deceived. He says, God is not mocked. 
For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. So how do you escape that law, that moral principle that God has woven into the fabric of his creation? That's right. Jesus reaped what we sowed. That's the gospel. We sowed wickedness into God's world, and Christ paid the penalty for it. Amen. That's what makes the gospel sweet. He says, the wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. So as with verse 15 and 16, you see the nations and the wicked, they're suffering together the same fate. The the two often run together in the Old Testament, more so in the New Testament. There are some hints of nations uh, and the peoples being judged, but not as much talk, though. So it's more difficult to find it in the New Testament. But when we talk about the judgment of nations, we have to realize that that does not mean that every individual in that nation will be judged for what the nation did or for what the wicked government did. If that's the way it goes, all of us in this room are in a lot of trouble. Okay, a lot of trouble. But God always distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked. He always does. He can't avoid it because of his nature. There's a great illustration for this in Genesis 18, where God made known his intentions for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a great text. And when Abraham, he discovers it, and what he does is he immediately goes to bat for his nephew, Lot. Okay? And he says this to God. He says, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Genesis 18, 23. And then he begins to appeal to God in relationship to God's nature. He says, and it's, it's a long chapter of negotiating with God, if you remember the text. But he says, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That is, same word for justice or righteousness. Yeah. Now, it turns out, when you read the text, it's a test for Abraham. God wanted Abraham to intercede uh, on Lot's behalf, and if there were possibly any other righteous people there. But what we learned through that discussion there, and and how Abraham came to this knowledge, uh, we don't really know, because he didn't have the rest of the scriptures. But, you know, as Romans 1 would tell us, God has instilled the, 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 the knowledge of truth and righteousness in us. We know it intuitively, okay? That may be how Abraham knew. But by God's nature, he must make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And when he does, as our text says here, he identifies himself. For God to behave justly, he identifies himself. He makes himself known through judgment, okay? the judgment he executes. Look back at verse 17. He says, The wicked shall be turned into hell, and all the nations that forget God. Hell. What is hell? It's literally the grave. Okay? It's the, the place of the dead. The place of the dead. Uh, but we know that when Paul says that all sin leads to death, the wages of sin is death, he does not simply mean that people lose consciousness. Right? Amen? He means eternally so, Romans 6.23. But the wicked will die 
A nation cannot forget God and remain guiltless. He says, verse 18, For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. I like this. For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. What is he saying? Because, I mean, the needy have been forgotten. And the expectation, the hope of the poor seems to perish. And sometimes them with it. So what is he talking about? Now already he has put things in the future tense, right? Where he's leaving things to the last day, to the final thing. And I believe that's what's happening here. There may be no resolve, there may be no relief here on planet Earth. But relief is coming. Amen? It's coming. It will not perish forever, he says. It will not be forgotten, at least by God. He will not. He is assured that he will take care of business on their behalf. 19 and 20. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. Selah. Now real quick, oftentimes after Selah, there's more to come, right? Another reason why they say chapter 10 comes next in this whole thing. But that's for another time. Yeah, I love this verse. It's, it's a call to the restoration of order. Things are screwed up, right? Man has forgotten his place. He's forgotten that he's man. He's forgotten that God is God. And uh, because of that, he thinks he rules, that he is the, the, um, the, the, the all in all. Um, it's messed up. But it's through judgment that David is talking about here that men are going to sober up. It's going to finally dawn upon them through judgment who God is, what they are, yeah, it'll all come, it'll all make sense at that time. They will learn to fear again. Now, I think that this whole verse here, and much that's stated here, has all kinds of uh, eschatological significance, end times significance. Because uh, when I look at this verse, and I think about uh, the, the world around us, uh, the nation that we live in, all I can think of is absolute moral chaos. Uh, but not just moral chaos. Uh, we've always, I think moral chaos has always been in the world. But I think that it's at a pace that is exponentially faster than it's been 50 years ago. Uh, I think that, um, well, and not just um, uh, locally, but globally. And I, I, as I look at you know, church history, and all the progress that the gospel has made over the last 2,000 years, um, we have lost the, a huge percentage of that in the last 50. And it's, 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 it's troubling when we look at it, but it's also if we do believe that God is just, and we do believe that he's going to do this, he's going to reestablish order in his creation, uh, the best time to do that is when do you think? Historically, he has done it at times like this. Uh, when we look at various events throughout the scriptures. And so at part of it, we go, man, that's really crazy what's going on. And uh, we would like things to be changed. And we do. But I, I have to admit, there's something I would like more. I would just like him to return and you know, reestablish the order that he desires. Uh, he may choose to curve uh, all of the evils in the world, uh, curve the tide uh, with the gospel. 
But as I read prophecy, uh, I'm convinced that the coming of Christ and his judgment is the only cure at this point. Yeah. So we, uh, what do we do with that? Do we hunker down uh, and hide away or do we, we preach? Yeah, we preach. Uh, we share the marvelous things that God has done for us. Okay. Um, man's not going to prevail. Uh, we need to preach. We need to be involved. The truth is every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's better to do that now with the redeemed than to bow with the wicked. Um, but this whole thing that David talks about here is what I love about this psalm. Telling others about God's marvelous works and then encouraging others to tell others about his marvelous works. So here, I think for us in application, sharing the gospel with our testimony, because our testimony is a report of the wonderful works of God in our life. Isn't that true? What has God done for us? He's washed us. He's justified us. He's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. So sharing the gospel along with our testimony, okay, that is, that's where it's at right there. You know, always being ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Our hope is in the gospel. The evidence of that is what God has done for us. Amen? Yeah, that's what it is. The gospel of Christ. How we've benefited from it. Well, that's what I got for you from Psalm 9. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Did you get enough judgment tonight? Wait till we go through Revelation. Yeah. We did about 10 years ago on a Sunday morning. It's a good time. So. <clears throat> well, Father, we, we do give you thanks. We, we praise your name. And Lord, we're glad, Lord, that you don't just save. We're glad that you don't let evil lie. You, you refuse to let it continue forever. And you will take care of business. And so, Lord, I pray that like David, we could see both sides of this and that we would realize that both are good because you're good. You always do what's right. And Lord, in all of this, I, I pray that like David, we would consider the wonderful works of God, the marvelous works. Lord, that what you have done by sending your son to die for us and what it has done to us as individuals. And so help us, Lord, to be tellers, to be broadcasters of what you've done. Especially, Lord, as our world is, I mean, we live in a crazy place. And Lord, we want to snatch as many from the fire as we can. So I pray that you would invigorate us, and you'd inspire us, and you'd give us opportunity to speak for your name. Lord, thank you for my church family. Do bless them this week. Uh, give them opportunity and help them to shine for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Love you guys. Lord bless you.